Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 16th of May, Tom O'Toole taught the first session at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. In this session, Tom took us through the books of Joshua, Judges and Ruth. Tom is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and also runs the Broadcast Network, an online platform resourcing church planters. Let's take a listen to the session. Good morning everyone. We are working through the whole of the Bible over the course of two years and uh, we're in the Old Testament this year and we've reached the book of Joshua. Now the format of the morning will be I'll spend some time uh, talking and teaching uh, but also there'll be some reflection questions to think about um, whether you're watching with a few others in your household or whether you're watching on your own. Uh, these questions will be an opportunity for you to process uh, what you're learning, to reflect. So uh, do take the time to engage uh, with these things. And, and to start with, I'm going to put a question to you just to get your mind working. And that's just to think about what has been your experience so far of the book of Joshua. And secondly, then, what questions are you left with about the book as we come into this session? Okay, well, the theme of the book of Joshua, if you have to uh, boil down what it's about, it's about the people of Israel going into the promised land. So the land that God had promised them, they're now finally at the stage where they're going to go into the land. To set the scene, this all goes back to the promises that God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. So I'll read from uh, Genesis 12, just so that's uh, fresh in our minds from verse uh, 5 to 7. It says, and Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, you might wonder why then, if God made this promise, it wasn't fulfilled immediately. And we're told actually it's to do with the iniquity of the people in the land. Hadn't reached its full measure. It wasn't time yet for judgment to come upon them. So you've got this delay of hundreds of of years. During this time, over the uh, the course of the book of Genesis, we see uh, these descendants start to be um, multiplied from Abraham. And by the end of the book, there are 70 now from this one couple over four generations. And, uh, and with it, we see that um, this line of promise is passed down. So from uh, Abraham, it goes to his son Isaac, and then uh, to his son Jacob, and then to his son Judah. And we've been tracking it, and the whole family has been growing. One of the things that happens uh, in the, the last generation that Genesis covers is, is there's a big famine uh, in the land and they end up, all these uh, people moving away from this land that God had promised that they were living in 
to Egypt. Now, one of the uh, one of the descendants, Joseph, had been mistreated by his brother, sold uh, as a slave, but he'd risen through the ranks in Egypt, and he was the prime minister, and he was overseeing some famine relief, and he was able to make sure that these brothers survived and were fed. But then moved out of the land, so the promise of descendants, we're starting to see it happen. But the promise of them being in the land by the end of Genesis, they're actually far away from it. Well, Exodus picks up the story hundreds of years later. And these um, these 70 people have now grown to over a million uh, living in Egypt. And kind of the favour that was on them because they were Joseph's brothers has been forgotten about. Now they're being mistreated and they're slaves in Egypt. Uh, the book of Exodus tells the story then of how God raised up Moses uh, to confront Pharaoh, say, let my people go that they may worship me. Through a ver- variety of different uh, miracles and interventions of God, he, he brings the people to freedom. And the idea is that they're, they're brought out of Egypt and they can go into the promised land. It only takes about six weeks, the journey. So they get to the, the border of the promised land and they decide to send in some spies to have a look at what they'd face in the land. And it's, it's quite a, a well-known story. Twelve spies go into the land and, and ten of them come back with a report saying, you know what, it's hopeless. The people there are far too strong. We will never have any success taking the land. We might as well give up now. And the other two say, well, you know, they're not wrong saying there's um, big cities and formidable opponents, but, you know, God has promised. And if God's promised, God will deliver. Let's go for it. And those two uh, were Joshua and Caleb. But because um, these 10 spies brought back this bad report and the people were inclined to believe them, kind of a judgment came on that generation that they would never get to see the land. So the people were just wandering around the wilderness for 40 years until that generation had kind of died off and there was only Joshua and Caleb left. It was the upcoming generation that were going to take the land. Well, uh, working through the books of Moses then, the story of the spies was in numbers. uh, But by the end of Deuteronomy, uh, we've got to the stage now where that generation has passed away. Even Moses himself dies by the end of the book. He never got to go into the land himself. He just got to kind of see it from a distance. But with the death of Moses, it is Joshua, uh, this guy who uh, had been one of the spies who takes over. And we see that account uh, in in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 9, which I will read now. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. The Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, the Negeb, and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigour unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, 
was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this guy Joshua has been made the leader. This isn't the first time we've seen him. I mentioned that he was one of the spies that went in the land. But even before that, there's a story in Exodus where there's a battle going on. And it's kind of famous because Moses is up on the hillside and he's raising his hands to the Lord. And when his hands are raised, the people are down in the valley fighting the battle, uh, experiencing victory. As Moses' hands drops, then the battle starts to go the other way. And uh, Moses has got his two guys up there kind of helping keep his hands up. But if Moses, the leader, is up on the hill, you need a commander for this army down in the valley. And it was Joshua who was given the responsibility of leading. Uh, as I said, Joshua was chosen uh, as one of the spies to go into the land as well. Um, each tribe got to choose one spy and the tribe of Ephraim chose Joshua. And so we see that uh, Joshua had, had become Moses' right-hand man over uh, the books of Moses. And, uh, and at the end of Moses' life, Moses has laid hands on him and prayed for him. And he's a guy now who is full of the Holy Spirit. And so we turn to the book of Joshua itself. And the book starts with God commissioning Joshua for the task. Uh, which we can draw a lot from because God has also commissioned us for a task. Figure out the great commission that Jesus has given to us. And just as Joshua was empowered, so we too have been empowered by God for the task at hand. So let's read the first nine verses of Joshua to see how God commissions him. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So in this passage, uh, we see that there are three things that God uh, said he's going to give to Joshua in order to strengthen and embolden him for the task. And again, we can apply this to ourselves and the task that God has given 
to us. And the, the first of these things we see in verse 3 is God has given him a promise. He's promised that every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. He's going somewhere where he knows the outcome from the beginning. Why? Because God has spoken and God has promised what will be. The second one we see in verses 7 and 8, that God has given the book. He's given the book of the law and he says, do not let this depart from your mouth. Because as you meditate on this, you will know the right things to do. And then finally, verses 6 and verse 9, God says, I will go with you. He's promised to go with him. Verse 9, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So going in God's promise, according to God's book, and with God's presence. And in light of this, what's asked of Joshua himself? Well, firstly, um, obedience is asked of him. He's asked to do the things that he reads in the book. Don't do it his own way, but look to God's word as the guide for what to do. And then secondly, is courage. Be bold, be strong, be very courageous. Because if God's promise is for you, if God's book is guiding you and God's presence is with you, then be, be very courageous. Step out in the full knowledge of that and do what you are called to do. So then in the rest of chapter one, uh, with God having commissioned Joshua for the task, now Joshua starts to mobilize the people for what is going to happen. He reminds them of the promise that God has made. He gives a visionary speech about what God is going to do. And then he calls them to arms. We are going to do this thing. Chapter two, then, he, he sends some spies into the land. And this is like a repeat of what had happened in the previous generation. And where the previous generation had failed and come back with this bad report. Now, this generation are succeeding. The spies go into the land to a place called Jericho uh, and they meet someone there called Rahab who, who's a prostitute who lives in the city but she recognises that God has spoken and God has promised and God is going to give the city to his people so she hides the spies and the New Testament talks of her particularly in the book of James as a model of faith because uh, what she believes is converted into what she does. And she's also mentioned uh, in the lines of a uh, lineage of Jesus in the genealogies. And again, it's showing that where Jesus comes from, the fact she was a Gentile, the fact that she's a female mentioned uh, in the genealogies was unusual. The fact that she had um, such a, a disreputable profession all speaks volumes about the mission of Jesus and who he came for. But because she's helped them and shown this faith, the spies promise her that when the city is taken, that she will not be destroyed with the rest of the inhabitants. And, uh, and the way she's to signal um, where she is, is she's to put a scarlet ribbon uh, over her window. And it's a deliberate echo, I think, of the Passover when judgment came in Egypt and God's people were spared because of this kind of red blood over their doorpost. The red ribbon uh, over her window has echoes of that going on. So then uh, the spies uh, have given the report to Joshua. Uh, verse 24, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So they're full of faith. And so in chapter three, the people are now going to enter 
into the land. And we see in this chapter, there's a, a moment of consecration of the people. This is a significant moment. Think about in your church when you send someone out uh, as a church planter or, or as a missionary or something like that. There's this moment where it's all dedicated to God. And this is kind of what's happening among the people in chapter three. Then they start to physically enter the land. They're going to walk through the River Jordan, the priests first, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And as they walk, the waters part and they cross the Jordan on dry ground. Again, it's drawing us back, isn't it, to the Exodus story as the Red Sea part and it's like showing us okay i just like um these 40 years have been wasted but just as the sea part and now the river parts we're back on track with the story this is our new chapter god's favor god's salvation we're back with the story as it should be after the generation uh, where it was just kind of wasted and wandering and going round in circles well, through chapters four and five, then the theme is remembering. The people are setting up memorial stones to always remember what the Lord has done. Then they remember the covenant that they've made with God and a whole new generation gets circumcised according to uh, the covenant that was made. They celebrate the Passover, looking back to what God did to rescue them. So they've just entered into the land and you could think, oh, this is something brand new. But they're grounding themselves in the story that has brought them so far. The future is connected to the past and they know it. And then at the end of chapter five, they meet this uh, intriguing character called the commander of the Lord's army. So let me just read verses 13 to 15 of Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, Why does my Lord say, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's an interesting character because he seems to be distinct from God. He's the commander of the Lord's army. And yet he seems to be God. He's accepting worship. He's calling the ground holy. He's distinct from God. And yet he's God. I wonder who that reminds you of you see uh, other moments in the old testament that you've got characters like this the angel of the lord is one that jumps to mind and when you're starting to uh, formulate a, a trinitarian understanding don't think that's an exclusively new testament thing you see it frequently in the old testament it, it's god but it's it's distinct from god uh, and that exactly uh, is what we see in the new testament of the person of Jesus. This is uh, this commander of the Lord's army is thought to be a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son. You could say it's like a little cameo from Christ if you want to think of it that way before he became that man. But it's, it's God, the invisible God being made visible. And the question, are you on our side or on theirs? I love the answer. It's just no. No, it's not about God being on your side. God's on God's side. And the call for us is are we going to be on his side and Joshua's response of worship is showing that's exactly the side that he is choosing to be on he, he responds in worship which is exactly the right thing to do 
Let's just pause there, then reflect again, just of what we've seen so far. What are one or two bits from uh, these first five chapters of Joshua that particularly resonate with you? Uh, and what is it that you think God's calling you to do in response to these passages? All right. So as we move on through Joshua, the next section highlights a whole bunch of battles that are fought as the people move into the land. The first of them in chapter six is probably the most well-known of the battles in this book, and that's the Battle of Jericho. And the Battle of Jericho serves the function of being like the example, the testimony of how things should go, how it should be done. You see, in verse two, it says, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men. In verse three, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus shall you do it for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. What we've got here is God promising to give the city into their hands and then God laying out the plan of what should be done. So the battle was fought by trust in God. It's taking God at his word that he is going to give the city and then following God's instructions. And the instructions sound kind of mad. Just walk around the city. And then on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times, blow the trumpets. It seems ridiculous. And yet what do they do? Because they have faith, they obey. Faith and obedience go together. And God comes through on his word. The walls come uh, crashing down and the people have victory. And the instruction that God had given was that they were to put the city to complete destruction. Uh, they were meant to uh, destroy all the things, all the people, everything. Uh, verse 17 and 18 um, highlight this. It says, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. They weren't meant to nick any of the stuff from the city. It was all devoted to God. That's an important thing that we'll come back to later. Uh, also, uh, a particular point uh, in the chapter is made uh, of this salvation of Rahab and the word being kept and her being spared and saved. The second battle is the battle of, I think it's pronounced Ai. When I read it, I always want to go full on Ali G, like the battle of Ai. But however you want to say it, this is the battle we see in, in chapter 7 and 8. And, and this is kind of like the anti-Jericho. Jericho was everything exactly as it should be. This is everything going wrong. They actually lost this battle. And um, you, you can say, okay, well, why? What was it that went wrong? I thought God had promised them the land. Why are they all of a sudden losing the second battle that they fought? Well, verses two and three, it says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go out and spy the land. The men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, 
Don't make all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack AI. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up, and they're from the people. Um, do you see the difference between what happened in Jericho and what's happening here? In Jericho, God had spoken. God had promised them the city, and God had given them the plan. Here they get in there, and on their own strength and initiative, they're deciding what might work. They haven't looked to God in the situation at all. Uh, and so and they're leaning on their own understanding. But secondly, and perhaps even more significantly, in, in verse 1, it says there's a secret sin amongst the people of Israel. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. So uh, the stuff from Jericho that was meant to be devoted to the Lord, actually the people did not keep that instruction, which might be why God never spoke to them about Ai, because there was a problem uh, that had arisen from Jericho, which highlights uh, how important both of these things are for us and for our lives. Are we uh, holding on to hidden secret sin that we don't want to let go of? And are we just uh, running ahead on our own initiative uh, rather than looking for God to speak? Maybe the two are tied together sometimes in our lives as well. Well, having experienced defeat, Joshua didn't really get it. He tore his clothes. He cried out to God. He wanted to understand what was going on. But God says, look, get up. You guys have sinned. You've broken the covenant here. Yeah. And so with God having spoken about uh, these devoted things, um, they start casting lots to find out who was responsible. And they work out which tribe it is, then which clan it is, then which uh, family it is, finally which individual has done it. And uh, the lot came out to be this guy called Achan. Uh, and so he was the one who was identified. So they searched his tent, they find this stuff that he's taken, and then they destroyed it as God had commanded. And uh, Achan then gets stoned to death for his sin. With Achan now having been punished, with the, the devoted things having been devoted, and then there's a second battle. This time God does give them the instructions. He gives them a battle plan at the beginning of chapter 8. They obey what God said, and this time they win the battle. Now, unlike Jericho, this time they were allowed to keep plunder from the, from the victory. Um, the end of that chapter, they renew the covenant, and then we move on to, to Gibeah in chapter 9. Now, if, if at AI the issue is secret sin, here at Gibeah the issue is complacency amongst God's people. They get played, a trick is done upon them. You get these Gibeonites who approach them and um, they've dressed themselves up to look like they've gone uh, like a long, long journey. They're in worn out clothes, their shoes are all worn. They've brought stale bread in their supplies. It looks like they've come a long way. And they go to the people and said, look, um, we'd like to make a peace treaty with you. We'd like to make a covenant. Let's vow not to attack one another. And, um, you know, the Israelites go for it. They, uh, they agree with what, uh, with what is requested. They make this treaty with the Gibeonites. Now, uh, in verse 14, it says that this was, um, well, it hints at a problem. It says, so the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. 
It's like they didn't pray about it. They didn't bring this question to God. Should we make peace with these people? And the implication of it saying that is this is what they should have done. And yet they chose not to. Again, they're leaning kind of just on their own complacent understanding. We know what will be best. And then there's kind of the big reveal. Because at the end of three days, they, they get to the next city. And it is the city... Uh, it is the city of Gibeon, and, and they should uh, have been taking this city next. It was the next place that God wanted them to conquer, but they made this agreement and this treaty saying that they wouldn't. So what to do? Well, they can't just go ahead and smash them and take the city anyway, and that would be a breach of covenant. And if we've learned anything so far in the Bible, it's how significant covenant is to God and keeping your word and keeping a promise. God is always faithful to his covenant and God wouldn't want the Israelites to break a covenant that they've made. So in the end, rather than uh, kind of wiping out these people, uh, they let them live and, and become integrated into their people and do jobs like cutting wood and drawing water and, uh, and different things. And so they're kind of molded in to the people of Israel. These people who knew that God had given them the land and feared them. But, but over time, it's like they became thorns in the side of the people. So much so that uh, later on, and um, you might see this uh, next time when you look at uh, the story of Samuel, but Saul had a bunch of them executed. And there's a huge cry for justice after this, because even though it was many generations later, the, the people had made a promise. So David had to respond and put things right and give these people justice. So um, that, that was Gibeah and kind of it's like a, it's not a true victory although um, kind of the people are absorbed in it wasn't what God had said. Chapters 10 to 12 we see uh, further conquests happening the pace picks up you get five kings banding together and counter-attacking the people of Israel. Now God gives Israel victory even makes the sun stand still in the sky to extend the battle and these kings get executed and bit by bit we see more and more sections of the land get taken. We're not given the same level of detail in these chapters that we were in the earlier ones but what we're seeing is a gradual conquest of the land and coming into the things that God had promised. And the way it's left is in two ways. Both of these contrast with each other and yet both are true. In chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 7, it says there's plenty of land still to be conquered. And it kind of outlines what all the land was that was still yet to be conquered. But in chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, it says all the promises had been fulfilled. Let me read those verses. Uh, Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it and they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So we see uh, these dual realities, God's promises, we've seen them fulfilled so far and we can trust that he's good for and faithful for all of them and treat it as good as done because we know and we've seen him faithful so far and we know he will be faithful for that which is yet to do. That's important for God's promises in Joshua. It's also important for God's promises in our own life. Now, having outlined uh, a whole bunch of the battles that we see in Joshua, uh, you might have noticed there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of death happening 
in this book. And I don't just want to kind of walk you through the events, but it'd be good to reflect on that a bit as well. So just to get you thinking uh, for a few minutes, why don't you just have a think about how do you feel about some of the violence that we read about in this book? And how would you answer a friend who objected to the Bible on this ground because of what they read? Here, just think about that for a few minutes. Okay. Now, uh, we've not got time to do a full session on this, and it could easily be a full session in itself. And I don't have any uh, illusions that I would be able to kind of solve this in its entirety. I just want to give you um, three thoughts that help to, uh, to think about this. Uh, and the first one uh, to give you is just a question of why the Canaanites? Is it just arbitrarily that they were there in the land that... Um, that the Israelites wanted to go into? Yeah, and the answer is no. No, this wasn't an arbitrary wiping out of a people. This was a, a judicial thing where God, as the judge, was executing judgment on sinful people, evil people, wicked people. And so it was an act of godly judgment. So um, when God made his covenant with Abraham talking about uh, the land. Um, let me just read from Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 13 to 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God was saying uh, back in uh, the time he made the covenant with Abraham, the time for judgment isn't yet. The iniquity isn't complete, but there will come a moment that their iniquity is so much that an act of judgment needs to happen. And that's what was happening as, in the book of Joshua as the people take the land. What is it that they were doing? Let me give you a couple of uh, examples. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 29 uh, to 31. Uh, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations with whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in the land, take care that you're not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So this was a place that was practicing child sacrifices. It was throwing kids on fires of idolatry. You could read from Leviticus 18 as well, like all the sexual practices that were forbidden in Israel. Getting the idea is this is happening in the land. This is a picture of a depraved, evil land, murdering kids going after their false gods. And so we get this sense this is an act of, uh, of judgment from the one God Almighty who has the right to judge. And it's a shadow, actually. There will be a judgment day coming on all the world's iniquity. And God rightly will judge the world on that day. God's Justice and judgment is righteous. Now, the second uh, observation that I would make is that um, we see it, it certainly wasn't the case that all of the Canaanites were wiped out. Now, we've already picked up some 
uh, exceptions. So we've picked up Rahab, we've picked out uh, the Gibeonites. Um, but also we see that there were, um, there, there were instructions given in the, in the law of the Old Testament uh, about marriage and about business deals with the people in the land. And there were, uh, there were things that were forbidden. So you, you shouldn't marry, you shouldn't do business. But this, the, the implication of that is saying that there'll be people there. They won't all be wiped out, but actually they'll be there. And so uh, we need some regulations about how you interact with them. Now, a common thing that happened in, uh, in ancient battle reporting was that uh, numbers and victories and, um, and, and destructions were uh, described using hyperbolic language. That was a feature of the genre of ancient battle reporting. And, and what we see in Joshua certainly is ancient battle reporting. And just like every bit of scripture is written uh, within the conventions of the genre that it is written in, say like Book of Revelation, you know, a lot of it's kind of image driven and kind of metaphor we, we, we know to read it that way because of what it is well again when we're reading ancient battle reported we should read it within the terms of that genre and then the third thought is just that it was a very unique moment in history this isn't something that we have been called to do as new covenant followers of Christ. Uh, Jesus said those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So it certainly shouldn't encourage us to violence in living out our faith. In fact, uh, I would say that the church's darkest moments have been those moments where we've tried to advance the kingdom of God by means of earthly violence. So with that little kind of excursus done, let's jump back into the story uh, of Joshua. So um, having seen this section of battles, the next chunk, uh, really starting in chapter 13, uh, is about uh, the people in the land dividing it up, the various inheritance being given. It starts with the inheritance for the tribes east of the Jordan. So picking up the story from Numbers chapter uh, 33, where you've got two and a half tribes, so Reuben and Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, had wanted to have land uh, on, on the other side of the Jordan for their inheritance. And, uh, and there was a bit of kind of pushback on that. So what, don't you want to come and help us fight for the land? Like, come on, we're all in this together. But like, no, no, we, we do. We want to go and help you fight for the land. But when it's all said and done, can we have this bit? as our inheritance so, so they go and they help and, and they're given that as their inheritance and then we turn attention uh, to the land west of the Jordan and the land is divided up tribe by tribe by tribe they each get their section of land and it outlines where that will be what cities uh, are in it who gets to live there uh, things like that and, and there's a particular allotment for Caleb as well he was the other spy with Joshua who was faithful. He gets dibs on whatever bits of land he wants. Um, within it as well, they build cities of refuge. So these were cities that if you're accused of a crime, you can uh, you can flee to these cities to make sure that a, a trial happens and, uh, and that there's real true justice in the land. These were scattered through all the tribes and inheritance was given to the Levites as well. Like They didn't get to have uh, a chunk of land of their own as a tribe, but they were allotted their cities and pasture lands within the inheritances of the other tribes and then finally we see these eastern tribes of Reuben, Gad and half of Manasseh finally they they go back onto their side of the Jordan they've completed their promise and they build this uh, what's called an altar of witnesses as a, as a reminder to them that they're one 
people with the same God as uh, those on the west of the Jordan. And as a reminder to those on the west of the Jordan that they're one people with these tribes as well. I mean, to land near the end of the book, chapter 23. Now, Joshua is nearing the end of his life. And so just as at the beginning of the book, we saw Moses had passed the baton onto Joshua. Now, Joshua is commissioning the leaders of the people. You'll notice that the language of this it kind of mirrors the language of when Joshua himself was commissioned to lead. Let me read uh, chapter 23, verses 5 to 8, where it says, The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. That's kind of the vibe that is going on here, the same kind of commissioning. So all these people are to take the lead. It's not kind of one successor now, but there are leaders amongst the people. We see a renewal of the covenant where they, uh, again, can renew these promises to God. Uh, and then Joshua gives everyone a choice. And this is the choice that everyone needs to face. And it's in chapter 24, in the last chapter of it, verses 14 and 15. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people make their choice. They say, yeah, we will follow God as well. They commit that they are going to follow God. And then the book ends with Joshua's death. So as we conclude this, let me give you one more uh, bit of, uh, of thinking and reflection to do. I just want to uh, ask you two more questions to think about. Firstly, having overviewed the book of Joshua, I want you to think about this. Where do you see Jesus in this book? And then secondly... Based on this book, what do you think God would have you do in response to this part of his word? In the second part of the session, we're going to be covering the book of Judges. And then at the end, we'll have a look at the book of Ruth, which is the shortest of the three books we're looking at today. So, so just to start, have a think about what has been your experience so far with the book of Judges. And as you've read it before, are there any questions that this book has left lingering in your mind or things that you don't quite understand about it? Honestly, the book of Judges can actually be a tricky one to read and to understand. There's a lot going on in there that on first reading uh, doesn't always make sense to us. Now, the context of the book uh, the, the people have come into the land, as we heard about in the Joshua session. Now, Joshua uh, has died at the end of the book of Joshua. And the people are still fighting uh, against the Canaanites to take full possession of the land. And you've got some old hands around, people like Caleb, people who were significant in Joshua's day. 
And what you find, particularly in the early chapters of the book of Judges, is rather than doing what they were instructed to do and completely casting the Canaanites out, they fail to do that. In a lot of cases, they come to a bit of an accommodation with them. They make compromises. They go part of the way on what God said, but not all the way. Sometimes that can be a challenging picture for our own lives. And their failure to do what God had told them to do proves to be a problem for them for generations to come. And we see this highlighted at the beginning of chapter 2 of Judges. Let me read the first five verses there. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. He said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? So now I say, I'll not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your side. Their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel... The people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Well, as you might have guessed from the the name of the book, uh, it's a book about a series of judges. Now, when we talk about judges, the word's used in a sense broader than we would typically use it. We think when we hear a judge of someone in a judicial sense, someone who sits in a court of law and gives a ruling. But the broader sense of the word here is that they're rulers, they're leaders, they're people in charge of Israel, people in charge of God's people. The term judge tended to be used for an unelected, non-hereditary ruler over God's people. So it was a leader who tended to be raised up by God. There was a God part to it with an anointed, but also a recognition from the people as well. But someone who's raised up for a particular moment often in a a military context and you've got this kind of cometh the hour cometh the man kind of feel to how these judges came to be in power and in the bible there are 16 uh, different leaders that i can identify who meet this definition you've got moses and joshua they would definitely um, count as judges you've also got eli and samuel who would uh, be called judges But really, when we talk about judges, mainly we're focusing on the 12 judges that are highlighted in this book of the Bible, in the book of Judges. And six of them uh, we could call major judges, and we'll we'll go through their stories shortly. And the other six are what you'd call the minor judges. So Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And we're not told much of their stories. They're just name-checked as other judges. Judges in chapter 3, chapter 10, and chapter 12. And the reason we've got so many judges and the stories are being told of one after another after another is that this book is very cyclical. It's a cycle. You find that the same things keep happening over and over again. The same problems keep arising. They get solved, but then the problems come around once again. And those solutions don't seem very permanent. So you can think of it like a cycle or maybe even better would be to think of it like a spiral. It's like the same things, but it's getting even worse and even worse and even worse as we go on. 
And to illustrate this cycle that we've got going on, I want to look at the first of these judges, this character called Othniel, who we find in Judges chapter 3. So uh, let me just read from verses 7 to 11 to get you an idea of Othniel's story. It goes like this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So that's the story of Othniel. What do we see happening? What are the steps of this cycle? Well, the first thing that we saw in verse 7 was that Israel did evil in God's sight. They turned away from God to worship idols instead. That's where the cycle begins. The second step of the cycle we pick up in verse 8, where God's anger is kindled against them because of what they've done. So their enemies defeat and enslave them. So then from this uh, position of being enslaved, we get to step three in verse nine. The people cry out to God for deliverance. And then step four, God raises up a deliverer or a judge. And in this case, it's Caleb's nephew, Othniel, and the Holy Spirit is on him and he goes to war. Taking us to step five, Israel is delivered, verse 10. And, and finally, step six, there is peace for a whole generation that we're told about in verse 11. But if we just read on uh, past the passage that I read, verse 12 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we're right back into step one and the cycle continues. So the way the story is told for Othniel is it's pretty short, it's pretty simple. But it gives us this pattern that will be repeated throughout the book. As we read the other judges, we get this pattern elaborated on and new details introduced about these different judges. The second judge to highlight then is Ehud. Uh, he takes up most of the rest of chapter three. Uh, Ehud was a left-handed man uh, and the reason that this is highlighted in there is just to say this guy that God has raised up, a little bit different to what you'd have expected, it's just highlighted a point of difference that he had to most and this idea of the judges being in some way different or unexpected or unpredictable is a theme that runs through the book. And what happened is the people had turned from God, but the adversary uh, that they were facing was Eglon, the king of Moab, who'd also gathered the Ammonites and the Amalekites to him. Uh, and basically Eglon was a big guy. He was really fat and he had the people enslaved uh, and he was treating them harshly. So you've got Ehud, this judge, and he went to pay tribute to Eglon and he had a sword that he'd hidden and he'd strapped it to his right thigh, uh, which because he was left-handed made it easily accessible. But the guards didn't even think to look there. They might check his left thigh where a right-handed person 
would hide it, but they didn't check his right thigh. So he went in to pay tribute, and he killed King Eglon with the sword. And we're told that because Eglon was so fat, it's like the sword was utterly consumed within him. And then he made his escape, and his guys, like Eglon's guards and stuff, they they're worried because they think the king might be on the toilet, but they don't want to go in and disturb him. It's taking so long. Eventually, they do go in, but by now, Ehud is long gone. He comes back with an army, but because the king's already dead, the morale of the people is down, there's not a lot of resistance, and so the people are delivered. That's Ehud's story. The third of our major judges that we pick up is Deborah. And just like Ehud, a point of difference was noted with his left-handedness, well, Deborah, a point of difference, is noted that she's female, which for a leader in this day and age was very unusual. You could call her the original girl boss. A really, really unusual thing. But God had raised her up to have this leadership role amongst the people. And at the time, you've got Sisera, who's leading the Canaanite army. So he's kind of the adversary that they're up against. Deborah is sitting under a tree judging the people, in the sense that she's kind of given rulings, like a, a, a judicial kind of judging, but she's also got this leadership role as well. And the people bring to Deborah this issue of Sisera and his army and the oppression that is coming through him. So Deborah decides something needs to be done. So she summons Barak, who's the commander of the army, and says, you've got to gather your army, you've got to go down and deal with this. But Barak's a bit of a, a coward, and he says he will only do it uh, if, if she comes too, if she comes with him. And um, Deborah prophesies, uh, she's a prophet as well as a judge. And uh, the prophecy she gives is that, okay, well, because of Barak's cowardliness, he's not going to get the glory for Sisera's defeat. Actually, uh, Sisera's defeat will be at the hands of a woman. And you kind of think, okay, maybe it would be Deborah's own hand. It turned out that wasn't the case. They do get to battle. Barak wins, Sisera legs it, uh, and she gets to, uh, he gets to the tent of uh, a woman called Jael, and he asks for water and somewhere to stay, so she lets him stay in her tent, but while, while he's asleep, she hammers a tent peg through his skull. She has Deborah and Barak, their adversary, dead, and they all have this big worship celebration of what God has done, delivering them from this enemy. Next in our line of major judges there, we've got Gideon. And Gideon's story is found in chapters 6 through 8. And at the time now, it's Midian who is oppressing Israel. And in the midst of this Midianite oppression, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And the angel calls him a mighty man of valour, which um, really uh, seems quite ironic at the time. It looks like there's nothing particularly impressive about Gideon, he doesn't really want to do it. He's hiding away and he protests his insignificance. He says, you know what? I'm the least significant person in my family and my family's the least significant in the tribe and our tribe's the smallest and least significant of the tribes. You've got the wrong man. And the response that God gives isn't like, actually, I've got the right guy. You're amazing, Gideon. You're just the man for the job. His response is simple. God says, but I'm with you. It doesn't matter whether Gideon is mighty or insignificant. If God is with him, then that is enough. And so Gideon, he, he asks for some signs. and God comes through and God gives him the signs 
that he wants. So um, he builds an altar to the Lord. He tears down the family altars to false gods. Eventually he gathers an army for battle. And the army that he's gathered is actually pretty small for the job. There are only 32,000 of them against a Midianite army of over 100,000. And yet God says, no, no, Gideon, the army that you've got here is still too big. It's still too big. I want this army to be smaller. So uh, they, they do a shout out and basically said, look, any of you who are scared, anyone in this army who doesn't fancy the battle, you can go home now. You don't have to stay. You don't have to fight. And so with this invitation, 22,000 of them do. Only 10,000 remain. But God again says, no, 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 still too many. So they separate them out according to the way they drink water from a stream until there's only 300 people left. And the idea is like, look, if 30,000 win against 100,000, it looks impressive. It looks like the generals have done well. It looks like the soldiers have had a real good battle. But if 300 win against 100,000, that shouldn't be happening. That's something that only God can do. So only God gets the glory. So these 300 soldiers, they go to battle and they do win to the glory of God. Then they call the full army back. They fight another battle. They win another battle and they deliver the people. Having delivered the people, the people decide they want to make Gideon a king, uh, whose sons would then rule after him, not like a judge who's non-hereditary. They want uh, a dynasty coming from Gideon. But Gideon uh, recognises the danger in this, the danger that uh, he and his family lineage might become an idol, as though it was him, not God, that was significant. But what he did do uh, is he made an ephod of gold, and this did become a bit of a snare for the people still. And then Gideon died. I just want to give you a little exercise to think about at this point. So far we've looked at a few different judges. We've looked at Othniel, Ehud, Deborah and Gideon. Uh, And all I want you to think about, based on what we've seen so far, what marks would you give each of these judges out of 10 based on how well they did as a leader of God's people? And why did you choose the number that you did? And then as we go on and look at a few of the other judges, apply the same exercise there. Give each of them marks out of 10. And and are these good judges? Are these bad judges? Which ones are better than others? I'll give you a minute or two to do that. Let's pick up the story then in chapter 9. Now chapter 9 focuses on another character called Abimelech. And Abimelech is sometimes listed amongst the judges although we notice that there are differences between him and the people who would typically call judges particularly there's no mention of Abimelech being raised up by God which is one significant characteristic so Abimelech's there as kind of an imposter in the middle of this book but his story is still told even though he's not a real judge now Abimelech was a guy who lived in Shechem uh, with uh, 70 brothers uh, and the, these brothers ruled together and um, Abimelech persuaded the people rather than taking the rule of the 70 uh, he, he wanted to be the leader on his own so he persuaded the people to make him the sole leader and he had all his brothers killed as they were a threat to his rule except one brother who managed to escape this was a guy 
called Jotham. And so Abimelech is now beginning to rule. And uh, Jotham is telling stories about what Abimelech has done. He's spreading rumours about how violent Abimelech has been, which, which are true. And so the leaders in Shechem start to turn against Abimelech. And, and there's a battle between Abimelech and, and these leaders in Shechem who have turned on him. Abimelech wins and then he raises the whole city to the ground. Then there's another battle uh, against a city called Thebes and Abimelech gets killed. And the way he gets killed is that a woman throws a millstone that lands on his head and crushes him. And he can't handle the idea of a woman being the one responsible for his death. So he begs his manservant uh, to kill him, to put a sword through him so that his death wouldn't be attributed to this woman. Chapter 11 and 12, the focus of the story goes to Jephthah. Now, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute who was living in his father's home still, and he was chased out of the home by his stepbrothers. They didn't want anything to do with him. They rejected him. But all of a sudden, a time of distress came. And when a time of distress came for these brothers, they called for Jephthah. They needed his help. He was a strong guy. And Jephthah's answer was this, okay, I will help you only on the condition that you appoint me as your leader. And uh, they do. They agree to appoint him as the leader. Now, the distress had come through the Ammonites and Jephthah goes and tries to talk things out with them. Uh, but he hasn't had any success in doing that. So there's going to be a battle. Uh, and before the battle, Jephthah makes this vow. It's a tragic vow. It's a heartbreaking vow. And, and basically the vow that he makes is that the first thing that he sees if they win the battle when he goes home the first thing that walks through the door to greet him uh, will be an offering and a sacrifice to God and um, you see this happens they do win the battle he goes home and the first thing that comes out of the door to greet him is his daughter uh, and it's absolutely a tragic moment and Jephthah is broken by it and he's grieving and he's mourning and yet he fulfills the vow that he made. And you read a story like this and you think, what? How can this happen? How can a leader like this have made such a promise and how can he do it? It's, it's completely jarring. And sometimes people will try to soften it. Sometimes people will um, look at it and say, well, actually, maybe what's going on is she was dedicated to live at the temple or to never marry or something like that. That's not what it says though. And whilst that's possible, it doesn't fit with the flow of this book of Judges that things get softened. Actually, it's a brutal book. It's a hardcore book. Extreme things, bad things are happening. So I take it at face value. Then after that, um, Jephthah gets into beef with another of the tribes of Ephraim, another of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Ephraim, and then he dies. Now, you might be thinking that Jephthah is the worst of the judges. You know, we've given the marks out of 10. He doesn't seem to have done great, does he? Well, the last one, Samson, he said, look, hold my beer. If you think he's bad, what about me? Samson's story is incredible. 
starts with a barren couple and the angel of the Lord tells her that she will have a child. It'll be a miraculous thing and that this child would grow up to be a Nazarite. So this is someone who would never cut their hair, would never touch a dead body and would never drink alcohol. Uh, this kid is Samson. He grew up. God blessed him and God anointed him. And as we uh, see the adult Samson, it starts with him uh, fancying this Philistine woman. So he got his parents to come with him uh, and acquire her to be his wife. On the way there, this young lion comes at Samson uh, and he has a fight with it. He beats it and he tears it apart with his bare hands. He gets to Philistia. He meets this woman and he really likes her. So uh, he's going back there another day because he wants to progress things on in this relationship. Uh, on his way, he turns aside and he finds this lion's carcass that he'd torn apart previously. And in it, he finds this beehive. And so he scoops up the honey out of it and he eats the honey from the beehive. You remember that the vow was that he shouldn't be touching dead bodies, but he's eating honey out of this dead lion. He gets there. He meets some guys and he's bantering with them. And he has a bet. He's like, if I give you a riddle, I bet you can't solve it. And his riddle is this. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And so they're mulling it over and kind of three days down the line, they still can't solve it. And they don't want to lose their bet because they've all bet him like uh, basically a set of clothes on whether they can solve it. They don't want to have to give him a set of clothes each. So they threaten uh, this woman who he's now married to. He's gone down there uh, and he's married to her. But they threaten uh, this woman to sweet talk the answer out of him. Uh, and so she does. And he tells her the answer to the riddle. It's the honey from the lion. And so the guy's like, we know it. We've got the answer. And so Samson, he gets absolutely furious. He knows he's been played. So he kills these guys. And then he kind of storms off in a huff. Well, this woman that um, he'd been there to marry, uh, the family think, well, he's not interested in her anymore. He's done one. So instead, they marry her off to his friend. Eventually, Samson calms down and he goes back to that place and his dad is all uh, apologetic. So the, the dad of the woman is all apologetic. It's like, Samson, uh, we, we thought you'd gone. We'd married her off to someone else and he offers instead his other daughter the younger daughter he's like look she's even more beautiful why don't you marry her but samson he, he's angry he's got an anger problem hasn't he he gets angry again and he loses it so what he does is he gets 300 foxes he gets them in pairs ties their tails together sticks flaming torches in their tails and just sets them loose and all the crops and all the orchards set on fire by now the philistines are pretty irked with samson they hate him and so they want to get revenge on him. And the way they get their revenge is they set his new wife and father-in-law and the whole household on fire, killing them. So we've got this kind of full-on hostility between Samson and the Philistines. Samson it comes to Judah and he's trying to use Judah as a base to, to get these Philistines back and to attack them. Yeah, and the men of Philistine come up to Judah and the, the people in Judah, we don't want a piece of this. So they bind Samson and hand him back over to the Philistines. And in this context, the Holy Spirit descends upon Samson and he breaks the bonds that he's been tied with. He grabs the jaw of a donkey. He kills loads of the Philistines and he escapes. 
Well, we, we pick up the story again uh, in Gaza. Samson has gone to, to Gaza and he's there with a prostitute. And these Philistines who are out to get him, they realise that he's there. And they set an ambush for him for when he leaves in the morning. But Samson's realised that they've set this ambush. So rather than leaving in the morning, he leaves early in the middle of the night. And he actually lifts the whole city gates and pillars and carries them and leaves them on top of a hill. It's like he's thumbing his nose at this plot that has failed. You might have noticed by now that Samson likes his women. Well, his next lover that we get told about is a woman called Delilah. And the Philistines persuade Delilah to seduce Samson and to find the secret of his power. Well, he keeps telling her different answers that are not true. He says, look, if um, you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings, that will do the trick. Or if you use new ropes that have never been used before. Or if you weave my locks. Eventually, though, he says, look, it's if you shave my hair. And it's all linked into this Nazarite vow that was made. Well, the Philistines seized him. They shaved him. They imprisoned him. And they brought him as a prisoner back to the, the house. And there were loads of people around but by now his hair has started to grow again and he gets one last burst of strength and he pushes down the pillars and the whole house comes down and everyone there Samson included die that's the story of Samson the judge now the final few chapters of the book are taken up by two more stories first of them we find in chapters 17 and 18 which is the story of the carved images this story begins with a young guy called Micah, and Micah nicks some money from his mum. Eventually, he confesses to what he's done, and he gives the money back. His mum's pleased to have the money back, and she decides it will be devoted to God. And the way she wanted to do that was to have some carved images made to help facilitate worship in the house. So that wasn't at all how uh, the, the early chapters, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on, uh, had prescribed that God would be worshipped. You see, they're already getting ensnared, aren't they, by the Canaanite practices. But that's what they did. And um, one of Micah's sons, they, they ordain as a priest. So they've got someone to like mediate between them and God in the house. Well, eventually this Levite is journeying along and, and he stays at their house. And, and Micah decided rather than having his son as a, like a fake priest, uh, they, they would hire the Levite to be like a proper priest. And now the Levites and the priests were different things, but he, he basically wants someone uh, with some more credentials, some more qualifications to be like their household priest. So he gives the Levite the job. Then a while after this, some guys from the tribe of Dan come along, uh, and these guys are thugs, uh, and they break into Micah's house. They nick these carved images, that, um, the money that Micah returned to his mum had bought, and they persuade this priest, this Levite guy, to defect to them. You know, the idea of... Um, you, you can pastor a household, but why not pastor a tribe? You get more people and kind of appeal into that sense. And so he goes with them. Micah finds out what's happened. So he goes to confront them. Eventually, he had to back down a bit as he was majorly outnumbered by these guys from Dan. So these guys from Dan, they go on their way. Eventually, they find a city. They kill all the people who are living there. They burn the whole city to the ground. Then they take over and live there and set up these carved images as like a centerpiece of this city that they've created. Final story we're told is in chapters 19 to 21. Absolutely brutal story. 
So uh, it begins with a, a Levite guy, uh, and this Levite guy had a concubine. So this is someone he was in a relationship with, but not married to. Uh, often, uh, as well as having a wife, people would um, have concubines. And uh, this concubine cheats on the Levite. Uh, and after she's cheated on him, she heads back to her dad's place in the tribe of Benjamin. Well, this Levite guy wants to get reconciled with her. So um, after a while, he travels to Benjamin, to her dad's place, in order to do this, in order to talk to her and to get things uh, back on the right foot. So they do reconcile. Uh, and by the time they've done so and they've talked it through, it's pretty late. So the dad says, well, why don't you stay over at, uh, at my place tonight? But they decline and they, they say, no, we want to get the journey started. We'll travel a bit and then we'll stop off uh, at the city of Gibeah on the way it's pretty late when they get there so um obviously this is like ancient times there wouldn't have been like a hotel or anything like that so, so they set up to sleep in the town square there's this guy uh, who's, who's walking past and sees them and uh, takes pity on them doesn't want them sleeping in the town square so says hey come into my house and you can sleep at my house for the night well, a crowd of people get wind of it. They hear uh, that there are these people sleeping at this guy's house. Uh, and they're demanding that uh, they, this Levite guy is thrown out to them. They want to gang rape him, basically. Yeah. But to save himself, the Levite decides instead he will give his concubine to be raped by them instead. So all night long, that's what happened. She's brutally abused by this whole crowd. And in the morning, she collapsed at the door dead. The Levite is furious, um, not seeing his own part in this is a, a bit weird, but he is, he's furious at what happened. So he chops her body up into pieces. He sends a piece to every tribe of Israel. And all of them are furious. How can something like this happen in Israel? So they send their armies against the tribe of Benjamin who have perpetuated this crime. There's a huge war and all these tribes win. And the tribe of Benjamin now, by the end of the book of Judges, is pretty much wiped out. And then they realise, actually, this is a bit of a problem. God's promises were for the 12 tribes. And one tribe is almost gone. There's not many of them left at all. And we've all made a vow that we will not give our daughters to them in marriage. How will they multiply? How will they go on from here? Now they start by uh, finding one town that uh, hadn't got the memo, so hadn't made this vow. And uh, they sent the tribes, um, the tribe of Benjamin, what was left of it there, to, to take some of the women from that town. That wasn't enough. So what they, they did is they arranged for all their women to go out and dance so that these guys from Benjamin could snatch them and take them as their wives so they wouldn't be found breaking their vow about giving them in marriage, but that there would still be wives for these men from Benjamin. Now, I started this bit on, on Judges by saying, what questions do you have when you've re read the book? I wonder as we've just talked it through and as I've just told the stories that the book of Judges tell, I wonder what questions you have. I, I would imagine number one, your main question, front and centre would be this. What the heck is going on? You know, you, you read a story like this. And it doesn't make sense. Why is this in the Bible? This seems like primetime TV. You know, it's power struggles, it's murder, it's rape, it's people doing outrageous and appalling things. It's telling the story of a society in total breakdown. 
Uh, on one incident after another is making you heartbroken. How can this be the case? How can that be the case? This should not be so. What the heck? If the book of Judges takes you to that place, it's meant to. That's the response we're supposed to have to these stories. And there's a refrain that runs through the latter chapters. We see it in numerous places. Judges 21-25, the very last verse says it again, summarises what we're meant to make of this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king and everyone's just doing whatever they think best. This is where that leads. This is a problem, isn't there? Sin, we saw in Genesis, starts to spread through the world. Even here in the promised land, sin is spreading. God's people need a king. Left to our own devices, people will spiral out of control. You see this cycle spiraling, getting worse and worse and worse. There's a progression, isn't there? When we were given these judges marks out of 10, maybe some of the early ones, the, the Othniels, the Ehuds, the Debras, would be getting decent marks. But by the time that we get to Jephthah, by the time we get to Samson, those marks are nosediving. And actually the way the story has been told, there, there's a geographic progression as well. So it starts in Judah. And you remember in Genesis, this promise of rule would be in Judah. But each of the judges is from further and further out. And as they get further and further out from Judah, where, where the promise is meant to be fulfilled, we find things getting worse and worse and worse. Yale Ziegler explains this idea. He says, notably, there appears to be a geographical component to their decline. The tribal area of each successive leader is increasingly farther removed from the tribal area of Judah. The leader following the Judean Othniel is Ehud from Benjamin, which is north of Judah. Then Deborah in Ephraim, north of Benjamin. Gideon from western Manasseh, north of Ephraim. Jephthah from Gilead, on the eastern side of the Jordan. And Samson from Dan. This suggests there's a correlation between the growing physical distance of the leader from the tribe that is meant to lead, Judah, and the progressive deterioration of the leaders. The book of Judges starts with the phrase, Judah shall go up, Judah shall arise. It finishes by telling us that there is no king. And in between, everything is going crazy. What the book of Judges is telling us is that to get out of this absolute mess, you need a righteous king. And you need that king to come from the tribe of Judah. It should be the promised one that we've been tracking all along in this overview of the Bible. Whose job would be to sit on the throne and to reign. Well, in the last few minutes of this session, we'll look at one more book of the Bible. And this is the book of Ruth. Remember where we've ended in Judges, because Ruth follows on from it, and Ruth will be uh, the solution. Just remember what we said. This righteous ruler, this king, needs to come from Judah. Here's how the book of Ruth begins. In the time when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. So it's setting us right back where we need to be. And this book of Ruth is actually going to be the redemption thread through all of that mess. You read Judges and you think, what is going on? And you read Ruth 
and it starts to put the thread in place that makes sense of it. So in the time of the judges, but now we're picking up the story in Judah. And the man it's talking about is Elimelech. And in this little story of Ruth, the names are significant. And Elimelech's name means the Lord is king. His wife, Naomi, her name means pleasant. And they're living in Bethlehem, which is meant to be the house of bread. So this man whose name is the Lord is king is in the house of bread, but there's a famine. In the house of bread, there is no bread. So the man whose Lord is king goes away from the Lord's land to Moab. It's ironic. It's not how things are quite meant to be. Elimelech goes to Moab and they take their two sons. Now this would have been entirely Elimelech's decision. Naomi wouldn't have had much say in it at all. Their two sons, Marlon and Killian, their names mean sick and dying. And their names are born out prophetically to be true. They, they get to Moab, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But 10 years into their time in the land, Elimelech has died, Marlon has died and Killian has died. And, and both of the marriages have been childless. So this leaves us in a situation with Naomi, who's on her own in this distant land of Moab with her two daughters-in-law called Orpah and Ruth. And she said, my name means pleasant, but no, call me bitter, call me Mara instead. As someone uh, in that day, in that situation, Naomi would have had very, very little choices. As a woman, she wouldn't have been able to just go out and get a job. She'd have been absolutely destitute. She was in a foreign land, so there wasn't family that she could rely on either. So uh, the options for a woman in that situation would have been begging or prostitution. That would have been all she could fall back on. So she, she realises she needs to go back to Bethlehem and see what extended family there is who might be able to take care for her. Yeah, but she didn't want to put Orpah and Ruth in the same situation that she'd been in, uh, alone in a distant land. So she suggests that they both go back to, to their father's houses, where their fathers and their brothers could take care of them. Now, that's a reasonable suggestion, and it would have been entirely reasonable for these women to go along with it. In fact, Orpah does, and she's not condemned for doing so. And yet Ruth has a different attitude. Ruth wants to go back with Naomi. She wants to stay with her. In fact, Ruth's words were, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so she went with Naomi back to Bethlehem. She's made this covenant. Well, there was a law in Israel called the law of gleaning. And basically the way this law worked was that if, um, if someone had a field and they were harvesting the field, they shouldn't harvest right up to the edges. They should leave a bit around the edge that anyone who's going hungry, anyone who doesn't have much could, could come and could have something to eat. And um, they decided to take advantage of this law and, and to go to the field and, and take some, some gleanings from around the edge. Well, this uh, field is owned by Boaz and Boaz is a quality guy. In fact, we're told in the genealogies that Boaz's mum was actually Rahab. Uh, and so he would have known something about being an outsider in the people, being in a vulnerable position. 
And so uh, when Ruth is there gleaning, it's like Boaz is keeping an eye out for her. He tells the men uh, to protect her, to make sure nothing, no harm comes to her. Because it would still be a vulnerable position for a woman to be out in the fields on her own. And also he says, make sure you just drop a bit more than normal. Make sure there's plenty for her to gather. So he's provided for them in a special way. And when they find out who he is, they realize that he is a relative of Elimelech's. And so Naomi has this plan that, um, that Ruth should go to him. And so she went to him uh, at night. And she kind of laid down at his feet. And again, she's put herself in a very vulnerable position before him. He could have taken advantage of her, but he didn't do so. And in fact, he, he realises when Ruth asked him, spread your wings over me, you are a redeemer. That he has a responsibility as someone in Elimelech's line to uh, redeem the land and to uh, take care of Naomi and Ruth, uh, which would involve marrying Ruth. But he was not the closest relative. So the closest relative had the first opportunity to fulfil this obligation. So Boaz went and he put the proposition to him and said, look, there's this opportunity for a field here. If you want it, it's yours. If not, I'll do it. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm interested. So by the way, with the field comes Naomi and comes Ruth and gets, no, no, I, I don't want that. I don't want to jeopardise the inheritance of my own kids or anything like that. I'm not interested. And so Boaz marries Ruth. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, we see the consequence of this marriage. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, there are redeemers born. Boaz redeemed Ruth. Uh, this son, Obed, was Naomi's redeemer. He would take care of her in her old age. But we see where this leads. This idea from Judges, we need a king. There is no king. We need Judah to arise. All of a sudden, we're talking about a king in Judah. David has entered the scene. You see, Ruth is here. And Ruth shows that there is hope. And Ruth shows us that the story is back on track. So we're going to pick it up next time uh, through the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, looking at David and this monarchy that is there. But through this bleak time, through this difficult time of the judges, God is at work. God is weaving his plan together. And ultimately, of course, David isn't the end of the story. But we see Ruth's name and Rahab's name and Boaz's name. They all come up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the one in whom is all hope and all fulfilment. Amen.